Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here today with my colleague and friend Dr Kirsten Mills. Hi Kirsten. Hi. Um, so I have asked Kirsten to come into the studio with me because last night we went and watched a film together and that film was the new film about Mary Shelley called Mary Shelley <laughs> um, which dramatises a section, a portion of her life, a rather short portion of her life as a as a teen and um, young adult and we're going to talk about what we thought given that mm. we both are fairly invested in Mary Shelley yeah <laughs> um, so let's let's um, do what a very wise teenager mm-hmm. once told me that you, you should always do and that's give the film a compliment sandwich yeah so <laughs> what did you like about Mary Shelley um okay um it was as far as the story goes, if we take it just as a sort of a fairy tale narrative, mm-hmm. um, it was a pretty good story. It was, it was sort of exciting um, in some ways, very romantic. I think the best thing about it for me was just the how beautifully it was shot. The visuals were gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, some of the, the acting was good. I think we discussed a bit about this last yeah. night. But I thought the um, actors did particularly well. Um, working with what they were given, obviously, they did a really good job. Um, but I think, yeah, it, it's just the lavish sort of sets, um, the costumes as well, although not always historically yeah. accurate. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that was the best part for me. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that Elle Fanning as Mary Shelley was mm. was good. Um, I liked the acting. Um, probably one exception which we'll get to a bit later. <laughs> I think you know who I'm talking yeah. about. Um, yeah, no, I thought that the acting was well done. Um, mm. I really liked actually the opening portions of the film um, yeah. when it, it focused on her life in the um, in the bookshop that um, William Godwin ran, which he did run, um, and she was, you know, sitting on Mary Wollstonecraft's grave and reading, which we know that she did. Yeah, and yeah. and then the, the sections in, in Scotland I really liked, actually. Yeah, yeah, I think they were the strongest parts. Um, they do evoke um, how important um, reading was to her. They did focus a lot on the Gothic mm. novels, which is, is good. She was well-versed in the Gothic, and that's mm. something that's often underrepresented, I think, in um, acknowledging how widely she read. Mm. Um, but we didn't see a whole lot of the philosophical sort of stuff that she was into yeah some suggestions that that of of godwin trying to get her to read that stuff but a sense of reluctance to read it which i don't think yeah was the case i think she was very excited about the intellectual sort of stimulus around her yeah you can still kind of read her in her diaries and letters and so forth like her reading lists which Mm. are insane like she read so heavily and so widely in in really kind of dense philosophical and political material yeah and and the implication of the film there's one scene in which um, he's got, you know, very serious literature piled up and then she is reading um, a Gothic novel and mm. she pretends that she's reading the very serious literature but she's, yeah. in fact, reading the very the, the Gothic novel and there's an implication that she's like, oh, that's, you know, a bit boring compared to what yeah. I really want to read when that's really not very true at all. No, mm. no. Um, I, I liked, as you mentioned, the grave scenes. I thought that was nice. The, the visuals around that were quite stunning. Yeah. Um, the way they've sort of, if, if you've been to the actual cemetery now, it's sort of mud-trodden and yeah. you know, very sparse sort of lawn that's been peeled away by lots of visitors attending that grave site. But it was nice seeing it sort of lush mm. um, at the time, much more romantic, because that was where they would frequently meet mm. um, in secret. 
you know, um, away from everyone. So it was it was nice to have a sense of that. I would have liked it a little more, to be honest, mm. a little more um, slipping away to that secret meeting point because it was there that they would discuss all of these wonderful, exciting intellectual ideas. Mm. And this was the other thing we were saying. A lot of the um, the romance between them is set up as a sexual attraction but not necessarily an intellectual one, which mm. I think does a bit of a disservice to both Percy and Mary because... Uh, you can see this in their letters as well, in journals, um, and, and Percy's written specifically about um, his attraction to Mary being both about you know her her feminine charms, her beauty, but it's her intellect. You know mm. that's the, that's where they really engage, and I just I didn't see much of that yeah. in this film. Yeah, and it's almost presented as a like the kind of attraction that two teenagers would have for each other, which I'm yeah. sure there was that partly but um there was no at all there was no acknowledgement at all of like the intellectual exchange that they really um yeah. had so they you know they mostly talked about free love and all of this sort of stuff and and you know heavy, you know laden glances and all of this um there wasn't <laughs> a a a conversation really between yeah. the two yeah and it it did set it up Shall we move? Shall we move on? We will move on from there. We'll start critiquing. We'll start critiquing. We clearly want to. We clearly want to. Because as much as I enjoyed many aspects of this film, and I appreciate what they were trying to do, Mm. and what the reviews, a lot of the reviews I've read of it, have picked up on um, the strength of Mary Shelley's character, and that seems to be very much about what the aim of the directors and writers was to do: um, was to bring out Mary Shelley as a strong, independent woman, sort Mm. of a feminist movie. Yeah. My problem is in rewriting history in order to do that. Mm. She was very much those things, obviously, but I I don't like entirely throwing Percy Shelley under the bus in order to achieve this aim mm-hmm. Yeah, by characterising him as something that he wasn't. In this film, as well acted as the, um, the, the part was, he comes across as a liar, a rake, mm. <laughs> a sort of cheating scoundrel, a drunkard when he, he wasn't. Mm. Um and yeah, almost sort of over the top mansplaining that point where he tries to um, offer a critique of what she yeah. should have done with Frankenstein. Oh. Not, not at all. Oh, yeah. His attitude towards her was incredibly um, supportive, and he had a huge admiration for her intellect, not just because of who her parents were, um, but because she was already writing and, and trying to write um, before they got together, before Frankenstein. Mm. And yeah. after, and, and yeah, very for a long time. Oh, after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that 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 really annoyed me too. And look, I think that you know there is a lot of unflattering parts to Percy Shelley's character, and he is awful in some respects. And I think they very much leaned heavily into that aspect of him, but they forgot that he's actually also an intellect. Yeah. Um. So we got all of the the you know more unflattering aspects of his character which I think are absolutely there if you read you know more you more you read about Shelley and the way he treated particularly women in his life the more you kind of get cranky with him but they (laughs) forgot that he actually is a writer and a serious intellectual like that you never see him reading you never see him writing you just see him like casually kind of throwing off little bits of what he presents as Entirely spontaneous, divinely inspired, inspired. yeah, at like parties. It's like a party trick. But you know, he was he was a serious poet and a a serious intellectual, Mm. and that is nowhere at all. And 
they make him into this kind of, um, as you say, a drunk and a, like a cartoon kind of villain in order to make the point that, you know, she was so kind of ballsy in her in her way that she kind of grappled with his yeah. kind of bad behaviour. But it's just it, nonetheless. It's yeah. Kind of, yeah, it, it's almost like they tried to write his character as a foil against which she had to persevere yeah. and overcome mm. in order to entirely on her own produce this work and while of course this has been a problem with a lot of criticism in the past and I think a lot of fans still attribute Frankenstein to Percy Shelley Mm. I think that's clearly one of the things that this film was aiming to address yeah but I I think in trying to emphasize what Mary would have had to overcome at the time in order to write it that they've gone a little too far Mm. in rewriting what actually happened because yeah I Percy and Shelley enjoyed, for all of the difficulties that they enjoyed, and um, particularly the the grief occasioned by the loss of their children, Mm. um, they enjoyed an incredibly collaborative, fruitful intellectual relationship that that went both ways. Mm. And in fact, Percy wasn't that well known at the time, and so that scene when you know people rush up and get the autograph in the park from Percy wouldn't have happened. No. (laughs) He wasn't very well known. And in fact, Mary Shelley's responsible in large part for um, making him as well known as he is through editing his work. Mm. Um, In turn, when when she was writing Frankenstein, he um, operated under the guise of a helpful editor Mm. um, and and sensitively edited her work and thought it was wonderful and, Mm. and really tried to help her get it published. And if anything, she was a bigger name at the time because, you know, she was the daughter of these two intellectual yeah. luminaries. And so everyone yeah. was, like, really excited by, like, her very existence, mm. um, you know, even if they hadn't met her because she had such an intellectual pedigree, radical yeah. politically um, pedigree as well. Yeah. So, you know, this whole kind of, like, oh, Percy Shelley is the man is, is quite a historic. Yeah. Shall we bring in Byron? We have to bring in Byron. <laughs> I don't know what that was um yeah I couldn't even look at him without laughing I don't know what that was supposed to be (laughs) it's like the campest Byron (laughs) I've ever seen I know and look again I can understand what they're trying to do like there are even more unflattering things to say about Byron than there are than there are about Percy Shelley you know I often um joke with another colleague Jeff about you know who was the worst romantic (laughs) and I think Byron really (laughs) wins that that contest um but he's a buffoon in this absolutely and you and if we if we don't see much intellectualism from Shelley we definitely don't see it from Byron um there's a scene where he pretends to be a monkey a monkey (laughs) they're drunk they're high and he's up on the lounge you know, guffawing around yeah. like a baboon. Um, it just, I think that was, I understand what they were trying to, they were trying to create this sense of um, the free-spirited, excite, excited sort of atmosphere mm. that um, occasioned that time where they were meeting um, in the Villa Diodati, which is, of course, the famous, um, yeah. you know, summer of 1816 when um, Frankenstein was inspired. But the problem was... It was inspired by deep intellectual conversations that went on late into the night and night mm. after night, and mm. they were about all of the science. In the movie, it's kind of assumed that that Byron and Shelley are off, you know, being dilettantes. Yeah, and drunk Paul out Dora of their mind. is yeah. the only one that sensitively is aware of Mary Shelley's interest mm. in science. Not true. No. Not true at all. No. <laughs> so you have to wonder why. that the, the Byron is presented in the film 
like you would be surprised if you could actually write a sentence. Exactly. Let alone like some of the most kind of long lasting, yeah. um, you know, canonical poems of the English of the um, English literary tradition. You know, yeah. he's just a complete idiot, and he's stoned and drunk, and you know, I'm sure the Romantics did like you know their opium and, and their recreational drug taking, <laughs> but um, you know, they were also intellectuals. Yeah. And that is completely bypassed in this like weirdly buffoonish Byron and even when he's making eyes at, at Claire Claremont um, Mary Shelley's um, stepsister he just comes off as ridiculous <laughs> he's just yeah. you have to laugh at him and you know he's he supposed to be this like you know there's, we call heroes in his in his wake the Byronic hero for a reason because they've got yeah. this like dangerous kind of sexy appeal and there's uh, nothing bad and dangerous to exactly yeah. exactly <laughs> but like there's nothing sexy about him it's just no. ridiculous like every time he was making eyes at Clay Claremont I just wanted to laugh <laughs> yeah it, it, and he didn't seem to take himself seriously no. either um but not in a, not in a good way I think there's there are ways to kind of characterise this the, the sense that Byron had of of being um, mm. a revolutionary, a, a dangerous sort of a person to know, a hedonist, mm. without making him ridiculous. Yeah. And I think this teetered towards the ridiculous in, in his character. Absolutely. He was completely ridiculous and there was no sense that he was a great writer. Um, he didn't, you know, we never saw him really thinking about anything. We saw him have a very antagonistic relationship to Mary Shelley which is not true at all they no. had quite a close relationship and one of respect for her intellect yeah as well and it's one of the few exceptions he made to young women yeah intellect. that's right yeah I mean he, he's not known for his like <laughs> feminism let's not claim him as a feminist <laughs> no. um but he did he did respect Mary Shelley and yeah. they can you know they um were in contact after Shelley died and all of this and yeah. um so yeah that that is is really elided in this really strange way and Polidori becomes a kind of um mm. weirdly like the sensitive one in ways that I don't really know where they got that from I know yeah and possibly from Mary Shelley's references to him as poor Polidori yeah <laughs> you know, when she writes about him poor Polidori didn't didn't have her good ideas you know for yeah. this ghost story competition um but yeah, he came across as a sympathetic character that kind of undercut um, and threw into light how unsympathetic Percy mm. was to her at the time, which is just, it's not what happened. Yeah. And, we, and the, the reason we know this is we have um, an incredibly detailed set of letters, journals, mm. they both wrote about it later as well. It's just, we have so much information mm. and we, we know a lot about what they did. They were voracious in their recording of what they were reading and what mm. they were discussing and it just it, that part is left out in this movie and there's no shortage of drama in their real life story yeah. there really is no need to to add that and they you know they don't show them um you know they, they talk about their, their financial difficulties and you know um Shelley's kind of lack of aptitude with money which yeah. is quite true yeah. but they don't show them you know having to flee um, and go to Italy and all um mm. and you know traipse around Italy as as you know essentially poor expat fugitives really um Absolutely. in some sense so they there's there's plenty of drama there in their real life circumstances and the way they kind of made Byron and Shelley these cardboard villains um although still affirming the kind of strength of Mary and, and Percy's love for each other it was just I thought quite unnecessary yeah it was strange by the end of the the characterization of Percy particularly when he seems to take the credit for Frankenstein yeah. quite happily yeah um and then use actually acknowledging her credit as a way to acknowledge 
his role again in creating the work, oh, but in, in terms of inspiring her misery. Yeah. Which, again, there are so many problems with reducing such a great work as Frankenstein, such a deeply philosophical, mm. educated, intellectual work as Frankenstein, down to a woman's passionate, overnight, you know, expurging of her pain caused yeah. by her husband ignoring her. Yeah. You know what I mean? There, there are problems, I think, with that, with that. Yeah, so they represent Frankenstein as this, like, way of dealing with marital strife, I suppose. So, you know, yeah. she becomes, like, not even, it's not like an illusion. It's like she is the monster who has been. Yeah. Um, refers to herself she refers to the herself. relationship, their love, as the monster. The, yeah. The, one of the final words. <laughs> yeah, I'm behold. the. Behold your galvanized monster, or your monster galvanized. Yeah. I'm like, what? Yeah, so she's the monster um, who has been abandoned by Shelley Victor Frankenstein. And and it's like a plea for her to be kind of taken seriously. And mm. then there's there's a concocted uh, months-long separation of the yeah. two, which didn't happen. No. <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, it just it's, it's makes Frankenstein's story about her marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's so young. And we know she was really young in, in real life as well, so that's, that's accurate. But because she's so young, it reads on the screen as, you know, yeah. this kind of, girl who's trying to get through to her boyfriend and this is how she's doing it yeah which is not at all what happened obviously and and drastically reduces the the work and the Mm. and the intellectual depth of the work um and it's it's cultural relevance as well yeah if if it were just about that we wouldn't be talking about it now we wouldn't have a movie about mary shelley (laughs) exactly and i mean they try to do the science stuff in that they show her at a at a demonstration of galvanism, which is just so, like, ridiculously over the top that it Mm. was funny. I mean, and I can see what they're trying to do. They're also trying to say, well, she's always been interested in science, but they always connect to that with her own personal grief. And I think there is a relationship there between her interest in galvanism and her personal grief. I don't think... but not so simplistically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They make it just like, oh, she's, she's you know, a grieving woman. She's lost her mother. She's lost her children. Or, or child she we know she had a few quite a few children that died in this movie it's just one um yeah but like so that she, didn't that didn't yeah happen the way they present either no it's that's quite right a big oversight given how important those events were yeah quite, and life. how important like maternity and anxieties yes. for maternity after the novel yeah. but they present that as just like okay so she's grieving and then she hears about this science that potentially could bring somebody back to life and so she just connects the two in a very kind of obvious and mm. simplistic way which it's not at all it's it's about um, all of these questions about life and how we think about life and yeah. maternity and, and all of these kind of cultural um, discussions around science and what science could yeah. do. Moral implications too. Yeah. Um, should we be doing this? At, at the time, um, electricity was seen as sort of on the border of the known scientific world and the mm. supernatural, and it was seen mm. as very dangerous. There were people out there sort of campaigning against these demonstrations as quite dangerous, as um, immoral mm. in many ways. Um, and I don't think that comes across in the film either. No. Um, and and these, these debates, and they were debates at the time, deeply inform her work, which mm. also um, goes into a lot of sort of Godwinian philosophy about education, mm. um, yeah, the, sort of the moral approach to um, the intellect and educating an individual, which is hugely in there, um, particularly in the creature's narrative yeah um, and all of this stuff is sort of swept away by this desire to um, have this emotional 
yeah. reaction that Shelley, that Mary Shelley's production of this novel was just um, an emotional outpouring based yeah. on the grief caused by her philandering husband. Yeah, <laughs> and like, and I can see what they're trying to do in their making, like her kind of claiming of that novel as like a feminist moment, but it just mm. doesn't work because it, it elides all of that, as you've said. Mm. And can we talk about the scene in which she writes it? Because she seems yeah. to. This has just really annoyed me. She seems to write it in one night. One night with a quick stop for a snack. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, novel. like, have you read Frankenstein? Like, mm. it's quite it's, long. Yeah. And uh, what also cracks me up is when she goes to see her publishers, she's holding the manuscript and it looks like it's like 10 pages long. It's so thin. She's got it in this, like, completely flat envelope. Like, that's not that's not Frank. Frankenstein's long. Yeah. It, took, it took her more than one night. And it also buys into this... this um, the thing that we see so often in you know popular culture and depictions of writers where they're like divinely inspired yeah. in one night and yes she did have that dream in mm. which she, the, the idea of Frankenstein did come to her but she didn't write it in a night and it was something that she she thought about and worked on in a very you know intellectually engaged way it's not yeah. like you know she was she this this idea came to her fully formed and she was just the conduit through which the muses worked or whatever. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Um, so in, in trying to serve this feminist purpose mm. of presenting her as this divinely gifted, strong woman, mm. which, okay, in many ways she was. She's that poetic imagination and she's a creative writer, intelligent mm. and very strong, brought up so, brought mm. up that way. And her father um, details how precocious she is in a positive way. Mm. Um, so she is all of these things. But um, I think it... it in trying to have this strong woman narrative, it it reduces it to the the standard story of a woman writing about her emotions. Yeah, and and in in a way, then serves the opposite purpose. Yeah, which is a bit sad. Exactly, and I think that's the way that all women's writing is still received as yeah. like it's a you know it's a kind of unfiltered, un unthoughtful kind of outpouring of emotion. Whereas I think that the way men's writing is thought of is is um, rational is intellectual yeah. is 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 divorced from the from the um, the life yeah. and it does buy into that it Absolutely. really buys into that in ways that yeah. make me really uncomfortable because I, it, it just takes away her her genius yeah and, and she was you know I mean it the thing is it's an extraordinary story she was 18 when she wrote this 19 when it was published mm. um that is extraordinarily young to write such an extraordinarily intellectually engaged mm. novel that has had a 200-year um, cultural afterlife. So it's 200 years this year that Frankenstein was published. Yeah. It's it's still incredibly recognisable. It still um, speaks to us in all sorts of different ways. And, you know, we're having a symposium later in the year yeah. here at Macquarie about, about the novel and how it continues to speak to us in all sorts of interesting ways. And he, by reducing it to, like, my husband is annoying and um he keeps sleeping with other people um it's just it just sells her out in a really uncomfortable way although obviously they had a feminist kind of i don't know aim it just didn't work yeah i i think with mary shelley's story now this is not to um obviously in in talking about this polarization that people tend to have between male and female authors in terms of Mm. women write about emotions and men write about the intellect Mm. when obviously the emotions are extremely important and they they play a hugely important part in frankenstein Mm. but who are we to choose which parts represent biography and i don't Mm. think Frankenstein, as we were saying frankenstein cannot be reduced simply to her biography Mm. um but yeah i just if you want to write a feminist story about Mary Shelley, 
you need to do no more than just look at the actual historical facts. Mm. She was pioneering. She was independent, mm. strong, intelligent. She overcame a lot of difficulties. And we need just represent, we can just look to her letters and journals and mm. we don't need to fabricate Percy as a complete villain. Yeah. Byron as the buffoon. <laughs> These things don't need to happen. Um, and, yeah, I think it does a, a bit of a disservice to the aim. Um, yeah. And it also kind of, it, it ignores, like, obviously it has to finish somewhere and it can't kind of encapsulate all of her life mm. um, because she did live into her 50s and yeah. I can imagine that that would be hard to represent, especially after Shelley dies. But it, it ignores that she was a, a very prolific writer, that she yeah. wrote other novels, that she wrote other forms of work, that mm. she, were, you know, she wrote essays in journalism, travel literature, yeah. plays, all of, all of this sort of other stuff that she wrote is just completely ignored so that Frankenstein becomes the one thing. Yeah. And nothing else ever followed it. It yeah. does, and even monomyth. Yeah, Mary Shelley. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, she sustained herself financially on her writing. Yeah, um, long after Frankenstein. In fact, they, there's no mention of the history of Six Weeks Tour either. No, which was written, um, you know, around the same time, inspired by many of the same scenes as Frankenstein, mm. published before Frankenstein. Um, yeah, that is one of the most conspicuous things missing from the film as well. Mm. Was the European landscapes mm. yeah you were saying that that's what you were looking forward to <laughs> i was looking forward to the scenes of the mountains the alps the glaciers these mm. things that are so crucial to frankenstein's landscape mm. um and crucial to the history of six weeks tour as well crucial to her imagination and percy shelley's as well the sublime mm. you know and that's sort of the, the gothic is really um and ro- romantic poetry and stories really bound up in this landscape which we didn't see a glimpse of mm. the closest we came were the scenes in scotland yeah. which weren't very sublime. No. They were more just sort of dismal. Yeah, they're almost sort of wet. And they, yeah. they talked about the weather, the Scottish yeah. weather. Yeah. But, you know, Mary Shelley talks about her time in Scotland as where she could finally be free mm. to use her imagination. Um, mm. And so she's running about these landscapes, really constructing her castles in the air and really um, dreaming her stories. And then later on when she encounters the European alpine sort of landscapes, the mountains, which they spend ages touring through, from the get-go as well, they elope to the continent. They don't mm. just run down the street and live in a shabby little house in England. Yeah, and accidentally bump into Godwin at the yeah, market. Yeah, that's, yeah. so <laughs> they, they actually do go abroad. They, they tour for six weeks and that's they, they publish their accounts as History of the Six Weeks Tour. And then they come back to England to find that, oh, you know, we're not very popular now because our radical ideals that we share together aren't shared by everyone Mm. and I think that's some of the part of the problem with the the movie is the way that those radical ideals are used to characterize Percy in a negative light as opposed Mm. to um there was an avenue to explore the tension between um someone having those ideals within a society that doesn't allow you to have them yeah exactly and that was the problem the whole idea of free love is fine except when you live in a society that doesn't allow you to do that and the the idea of um, women and men being equal fine except they were also an extremely patriarchal limiting society Mm -hmm. and that's what um, a lot of these nuances aren't explored in the film because it takes that simplistic route of strong female getting pushed down by all the men around her must Mm. overcome yeah and that's not not what happened yeah it's really kind of um it blunts those kind of distinctions Mm. and you know and as you say i think that's actually one of the most interesting things about how the romantics live because i think that's where they got into a lot of trouble because they were fine in their various ways although mary shelley i think still grappled with percy shelley's attitude to free love um but they but they were you know they had come to an accommodation with their kind of um 
morality around love and sex and all of this mm. this sort of stuff and yet and as you say quite rightly the rest of the society didn't function like that and yeah. that's that interesting real interesting tension between individual and society that was completely absent yeah. in this kind of um really blunt way i think one thing they did actually do though that i appreciated is they didn't turn claire claremont um, mm. her sister her stepsister into a cardboard villain yes and they obviously did that because they were doing a, a kind of what they thought of as a feminist kind of project but they they make her silly in the sense of naive but they don't make her evil yeah yeah i, th- I agree i think um we got enough of a sense of the way that she manages to partly unconsciously but partly consciously mm. insert herself as a, a third wheel yeah. in Mary and Percy's relationship um, and demand attention mm. from both of them but particularly Percy and the way that that eventually starts grating on Mary Shelley and will continue to do for the rest of her mm-hmm. life. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I liked that she wasn't yeah. a cardboard villain as well. Yeah, so they, they, they got that, I think, quite nice. Although at the end when she was, you know, when... Byron has has abandoned her and her her unborn child, and she's like, "Oh, you know, we are besieged females, oppressed by the yeah. men around us." That was a bit eye roll worthy, I thought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that was um, in many ways. I mean, it suffers from some of the simplistic reduction that a lot of the other characters mm. had. Yeah. in that sense, um, that that her sole aim is sort of to find a poet of her own. Yeah, but, yeah. It's like it's a bit... as if they were like collectible items. Yeah, you know, like I <laughs> yeah. found one. Yeah, done. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing that that I found strange was, um, and this is towards P- Percy's characterization in the film as well. The part where so we establish their love interest. They establish it in Scotland in the film, and then he follows her yeah. down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then there's the revelation that he's already married. Mm. That's not true. Either. No, that didn't happen. No. And it just there's no need to do that. It mm. just it casts him from that moment onwards as such a rake and yeah. a liar and an untrustworthy sort of untrustworthy sort of person preying upon this young, much younger mm. Mary Shelley. And which, waiting until she was already emotionally engaged to reveal, Oh, I'm married, whoops. Yeah. yeah. When mm. he's caught out yeah. by his wife coming to boldly confront Mary Shelley and say, Stay away from my husband. Yeah. And how did she know? Like I didn't in that in that scene where she confronts her on the street, like all that's happened is that Shelley has sort of taken up a position which he didn't realise as like the protege of Godwin. Mm. But like there was no indication then that there was you know apart from like heavy glances and all of this sort of stuff, there was no indication that her and um, Shelley were actually in a sexual relationship at that mm. point. I mean, it was an open secret in the house, but not beyond the house. So I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and I think I'm pretty sure that um, Harriet attended dinners at the Godwin's house with Percy for a while, and yeah. then gradually, as Percy became, you know, taken with Mary, you know, Harriet got abandoned. Mm. We can say what we like about that, but that's not the the focus of the film. No, um, yeah, it's. I thought that was rather insensitively handled towards Percy in mm. in the in this drive towards making Mary um, this strong female character that overcomes all the horrid things the men around her do. Yeah, I just mm. we basically I think it comes down to the message that in order to celebrate the strengths of women, we don't need to create villains mm. of all the men around. Her. And there were plenty of 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 patriarchal kind of constructs that she had to overcome. Yeah. Like there's and there's plenty of kind of bad men 
that she had to kind of you know overcome the opinions of and the in the judgment of mm. you don't need to add anything well that scene with hog when he tries to force himself on her mm. and she humorously punches him in the face yeah no no, no. <laughs> there are suggestions that um you know and percy berates her afterwards for not even considering giving it a go yeah which again that lends towards his negative characterization but you know from the letters um and journals and things she she was entertaining this sort of flirtation and this idea with him, although there are no suggestions that it was a consummated relationship. Mm. But you know, it was by it was far from the scene of Hog pushing himself on her and her yeah. telling him what to do with her fist. Yeah, like and, 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 and making him into like a, a would be rapist, really. Yeah, yeah. It's so again that's just another example of um, of this kind of process of trying yeah. to show what Mary Shelley had to overcome except she didn't have to overcome these. there were no. other issues very there were real other, issues yeah, exactly there were like there were real things that she had to overcome you don't need to create yeah. them although shout out to the lady who was in the in the theater with us <laughs> who in that scene when he said you know let's have a let's have a go of it and then and then mary says you know oh this this horrible thing has happened and he, and percy says well why didn't you just have sex with him um she went oh what <laughs> And she was living that movie yeah. because she was reacting to everything. So yeah. I think that the whole Mary Shelley storyline has not as familiar to to her as it was right. to us. And so she yeah. was she was fully involved. So maybe this whole thing works more if you don't know if as you don't much. Know the truth. If you don't know the truth. <laughs> I think, maybe it yeah. really works. I don't know. But she was yeah. living that movie. I tell you what, she was reacting. And when she yeah. saw the 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 um the um, information that came up about Polidori, you know, taking his own life. She was like, oh! so. <laughs> so this is both a good thing and a bad thing. It's yeah. good because we need more attention on Mary Shelley. We need yeah. more attention specifically on the collaborative relationship between Mary and Percy. And it's a nice timing to do it exactly. in the 200 years. Yes. This is, it was written, uh, yeah. published, yeah. So if this movie inspires more people to uh, actually read Frankenstein rather than just assume they know it from pop cultural references. Yeah. I've seen the or, film. Yeah, yeah. Or to read her letters and journals specifically. Um, and just to read some of the many wonderful biographies we have available out there, mm. um, that's great. So if it inspires that, wonderful. Mm. Um, but where my concern lies is in the people that will watch this, assume that it's based on a true story or the true story, mm. and run with that and sort of assume that they know what Mary Shelley was like and what Percy Shelley was like based on what they've seen in this one film. And that that's the key to understanding and analysing Frankenstein. Frankenstein yeah. And I always get scared of that in terms of students because I can just see yes. students who've seen this and go, well, Mary Shelley was the monster because <laughs> Percy Shelley was mean to her. Um, yeah. So I do worry about that kind of um, uh, presenting it as, as as the biography being the key to unlocking Frankenstein, which it, it you know, is potentially partly true but not in the way that the film suggests. Exactly, mm. yeah. And it's a really kind of reductive and boring, I think, um, way to think about Frankenstein, which is hugely mm. exciting um, and not because she wanted to, you know, make a point to her husband. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there are much more interesting ways to think about it, as yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to say about the movie that you found annoying or funny <laughs> um i think just the trajectory was entertaining enough to sort of mm. go along with um the way it wrapped up rather suddenly at the end in a very pretty bow mm. with the, the um, reunion of mary and percy shelley and and percy acknowledging that he was you know the source of all the misery that inspired frankenstein and that was enough for her to go okay great now we'll live happily ever after mm. 
with the suggestion that that's it, that's her happily ever after. Yeah. I felt that was, it was a, a rushed sort of an ending. And like we were saying, um, it doesn't disservice to it, all the events that came after, many of which are super dramatic and, and yeah. exciting. And I would have thought make a wonderful source for um film. Shelley dying. Shelley dying. The Drowning. way he does. Yeah. yeah. Um so yeah, I mean I I had a I was surprised, I'll say, mm. at that ending. I did enjoy I don't want to come across like I just didn't like this film. Mm. There were many enjoyable parts. Yeah. I just think um people need to be careful about how they consider it against what yeah. really happened. Yeah, and that's also always the danger with biopics and, yeah. um, you know, that kind of historical fiction. Um, and you, historical fiction is something that I really enjoy and I'm doing quite a lot of work on at the moment, but it does tend to reinscribe the most kind of reductive myths, especially when it's mm, about women. Absolutely. Um, and it really kind of shapes their cultural afterlife in ways that I think can be quite... Um, annoying Mm. and I think that's certainly true in this film and I agree that the ending is quite abrupt and quite irritating especially the way that they focus on the fact that and you know it's a big thing in this movie that they're not married and then when they reconcile at the end of the film um, then they you know it has the script up that says you know they get married as if that's like yay they got married a happy ending has finally happened and that's just so irritating yeah Yeah. and I mean I know they did get married um but it wasn't like this kind of culmination of like you know now we've suffered and we'll get married and it'll be fine now and no you know and Frankenstein's proudly displayed in the window of her father's shop and yeah that relationship's great now and yeah and she has another child like you see her holding the hand of her son Yeah. yeah Yeah, assumedly Percy yeah. Florence, who's yeah. the only child that will survive. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and again, yeah. <laughs> it's like a woman's story ends with marriage. Marriage, the baby, and her book. Her, yeah. her one achievement. Her one book. Her which one she, book. Yeah, leaving aside like the another 30 years of writing that yeah. she has in front of her. Yeah. I mean, like The Last Man is so cool. Like one of her, mm. her, her other novels, it's about like, the end of the world yeah and the final you know a plague that happens many years into the future and people have read it through the lens of you know thinking about pandemics and aids and all of this kind of Mm. stuff um that's such a cool kind of concept for a book and they don't do anything with that it's like it never existed um so that was that kind of irritated me yeah right i think we're just about out of time um thank you so much kirsten for coming in for first of all providing some free tickets. <laughs> we must thank Transition Films, actually, yeah. for sending us those. Yeah, so thank you, Transition Transmission Films, for yeah. that. It was a lovely night out, even if um, we didn't go along 100% with everything about the movie. <laughs> it was kind of pretty, though, and the, you're right, the acting is nice. And, it, look, I was yeah. fully concentrating and engaged while I was there, even if I was kind of going, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> in places. Yeah. Visually yeah. stunning, um, well yeah. acted in, yeah. for the most part, um, just not historically accurate. No. And needs more mountains. Needs more mountains. <laughs> Doesn't every movie need more mountains? Yes. yes. More mountains. More mountains. That is our advice for you out there in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you once again, Kirsten. Thank you for having me. No worries at all. Um, so this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be amazing. And you can um, have a look at our website at fromthelighthouse.org or follow us at NQ English on Twitter. Thanks. Bye.